like to ask the rest of you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. While you're doing that, and before we pray over some of the requests, I just want to give a public thank you to Herb, who filled in for me on relatively short notice last week and brought what I understand is a, a good and an encouraging message, and I'm grateful for his ministry to us. And I appreciate your prayers for me. I guess um, after ten or so days of having whatever, um, I went to, to my doctor. I'd been to the doctor about three times, but mine was not available the first two. And he determined that I indeed had uh, influenza and uh, still have some residual bronchitis and a little shortness of breath and all that kind of good stuff. So I just want you to know this morning at the end of service, I am not shaking hands. I'm not going to share. I will be back there and I will smile pleasantly at you and greet you, but I will not shake your hand and I'll keep all this stuff to myself. But uh, thank you so much for praying. I, a little short of breath this morning and uh, still kind of struggling for some oxygen and I um, found that toward the end of the message in the first hour I was winding down a bit. So if you see me flagging and failing a tad, just Pray extra for me as we come to the conclusion. I'm sure we will get through it. And don't forget that afterwards we have our luncheon downstairs and we're coming back upstairs about 12.15, 12.30 to have our question and answer time. And uh, I want to be sure and invite you back for that. Let's pray together about some of the requests that have been mentioned. Will you join me, please? Father, I want to lift to you this morning... Uh, Mary O'Shea, who uh, had to go to the hospital last week because of breathing difficulties and really turned out to be in a life-threatening condition, but you intervened, and we are grateful for that. And we pray that you would continue, Lord, to bring your healing hand in her life, not only uh, to remove the infection that she somehow picked up, but to to bless and use the chemotherapy in her life and Lord, to uh, bring the disease that is affecting her under control, and ultimately we would ask you to remove it from her. We would long for that, Father. We received an urgent prayer request from Laura and Jeter Livingston in Ivory Coast. The Civil War is heating up there. The administrator of the seminaries has been threatened as well as his family and feels the need to get them to safety. And there are many students that are being affected by this civil unrest. It truly is a life and death situation in Cote d'Ivoire. And we pray for Laura and for Jeter and for our CMA colleagues with them and for all those who were preparing uh, to serve the Church of Jesus Christ in the seminary and through their training, Lord, put your hand upon them and grant them your mercy today. Father, Laura has asked for prayer here this morning that that you would enable her by your grace and the power of your Holy Spirit to uh, eliminate cigarettes from her life. And we ask you, Lord, to undertake for her and to give her that grace and that strength to, to break the, the habit, the addiction that it is. And Lord, I pray that um, 
you would just uh, touch her in a way that would take away desire and fill her, Lord, with your presence. Thank you that she can come to the uh, assembly of the believers and say, pray for me, I, I need help. And we do that. Father, we rejoice with the Hartman family that Bill is showing signs of recovery. Oh God, in these days, please speak to his heart and bring him encouragement in his spirit. And Lord, give him a passionate will to live for your glory. I just pray that you would touch his body. For other uh, praises and thanksgiving, we give you praise. And we ask now that you open your word and speak to us from it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we come this morning to our study in Genesis chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 8 through the end of the chapter and talking this morning about the consequences of the fall of, of humankind, the fall of man. What happened as a result of their sin? And I was thinking last night as I was meditating on the message it seems like in the last, I, I don't know, last year, last six months, last few months, that many people in our church family have been going through difficult times. There have been illnesses, uh, there have been deaths, there have been uh, marriage problems and family difficulties and children problems and all of those kinds of griefs and turmoil and trouble that has been going on in our lives and for some reason in this season, I have been acquainted with a number of people who have lost loved ones, spouses, and close family members and are suffering in the grief of those losses, even outside of our church. And as I've thought about that, I have become even more consciously aware that all of the trouble we face in this world, all of it, in one way or another, can be traced back to sin. Sin is the ultimate cause behind every grief, every sadness, every fractured relationship, every death, every illness, every catastrophe, every earthquake and tsunami and whatever other thing plagues us, ultimately the culprit behind it all is sin and its effects in human life and in the world. And we realize this as we come to Genesis chapter 3. And one of the things that God wants us to understand as we study this passage is that the world as we see it is not the way He made it. That it has been damaged. He is still a good God. He is still a loving God. He is still a God in whom we may flee for refuge. He is our source of help in time of trouble. David in the Psalms cries out as he looks around him, he says, I, I look out to the hills, who is there to help me? As, as if to say, I don't see any help coming on the horizontal level. 
And then he says, my hope is in the Lord, the one who made the heavens and the earth. That is where my strength comes from. It, it comes from God. He is my refuge and a present help in times of trouble. So oftentimes when trouble hits our lives, our tendency is to get frustrated with God, to become disappointed with God, to get angry with God, even to run from God. And yet He is the only one who can help. And He is the refuge. He is the place of hiding where we can run to shelter and be safe. And we need to recognize that when we see trouble, it's because of Genesis 3, not because of Genesis 1. The end of chapter 1, we have the pronouncement, it is very good. At the end of chapter 3, we have another very, very sad story. There are both immediate as well as long-term consequences to the sin of Adam and Eve. And additionally, these consequences come in two forms. They come in the form of damaged relationships. They also come in the form of judgment and of curses that God brings as a consequence of their disobedience. And I want to look at both of those this morning as we expound this uh, section together. But if you will uh, look with me, let's read Genesis 3 beginning in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you, more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field, and your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and pain you shall bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it will grow for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. 
Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now, lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim, and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Last time we were looking at the nature of the temptation and the kinds of things that were involved in that, and we know the outcome. That Adam and Eve both ate from that tree and they plunged themselves into catastrophe. This morning I want to look at what that disaster looks like, how it affected them. And first of all, to look at the way it damaged relationships. One of the first things that we see is that it damaged their own self-awareness. It damaged who they were, Adam to Adam and Eve to Eve. We all talk about the innocence of little children, of babies. The younger they are, the more innocent they seem. It doesn't take long before the innocence begins to wear off a little bit. But, but the smaller they are, the more innocent they seem. And, uh, and we kind of look at, at the little tiny children as, as being kind of the, the, the epitome of, of blissful non-self-awareness. The truth is, they're totally focused on themselves, but they don't come across that way. Um, they don't know anything else exists besides themselves, but, but they're blissfully unaware of that. And they just kind of go through their little lives as if nothing uh, could affect them. If they lose a diaper, it's no big deal. They have no problem running around without a diaper. If they fill a diaper in your presence, it's no big deal. They have no pride. It doesn't matter. Um, if they get food all over their face and all over everything else, all they're interested in is, man, is this good stuff. They just have that wonderful kind of innocence that's like unaware of any problems. I'm not suggesting that Adam and Eve acted like a bunch of toddlers in the garden. But what I am suggesting is that before their sin... They had a kind of innocence that included a lack of real self-consciousness. Now, I don't mean they weren't aware of themselves. I think they were. But they were not self-conscious. They were not worried about themselves. They weren't concerned about how they were coming across or how they were looking. They were blissfully unashamed (laughs) of their lives were filled with days of of joy and happiness and pleasure and exuberance and enjoyment of each other and enjoyment of God and, and just delight. And then they disobeyed. And all of a sudden you find them doing something very strange. They're trying to cover up. They're trying to clothe themselves. They want to hide. I think that we go down a wrong path if we overemphasize the sexuality 
of their next action to make loin coverings. I don't think it was so much wrapped up in their sexuality as it was wrapped up in their in their intimacy and in their personality and in a desire to hide from one another. There's something symbolic in this gesture that says, I no longer want you to see me as I really am. I need to create some barriers. Everyone who's taken a psychology class in freshman year of college or probably anywhere else, even high school, you learned about defense mechanisms. Those tricks that we employ to assuage our guilt and justify our behavior and somehow or another come out of a bad situation, hopefully smelling like a rose. Usually it's because we have put a lot of perfume on to cover the stink. But we, we try to somehow come out looking okay. And you learned what those were. Rationalization is one of the biggest ones. <laughs> you reason your way into an excuse for your behavior. Or blaming someone else. Or projecting your feelings to the next person. Or hiding. Or, or covering up. Or in some other way, trying to protect yourself and justify your actions. Adam and Eve, we find here in the garden, almost immediately beginning to employ the defense mechanisms. As soon as God begins to ask the questions, by the way, you, you understand God did not need information here. God knew what was going on, but He, like a good counselor, He's bringing it out of them. He wants them to fess up. And as soon as he begins to ask the question, they start the blame game. It wasn't me. It was someone else. We'll get to that in a second. The second thing that was fractured was not only the, the self-image, but the horizontal relationships. Now, here is a married couple, but don't just think marriage. Think family, think humanity, think the race, think those horizontal relationships because as soon as you go to the next chapter and you find Cain and Abel enter the mix, here's brother to brother and one of them is about to become a murderer. The animosity and the brokenness of relationships between people has also begun. Adam and Eve covered themselves from each other. They didn't want to be seen. Some of you are still at, a, at an age... I hope you don't get too pessimistic over what I'm about to say. I just I want to be realistic here for a minute, though. Some of you are of an age where you're still hoping to meet that perfect someone and have that perfect relationship. And in your mind, you kind of imagine that's, that's going to be the someone with whom I can be myself. And ideally, that is a good foundation for a good relationship. Someone that likes you for who you are. That's a good thing. But sometimes I think we make the mistake of thinking, I'm going to find someone that really, really, really knows me, and, and no matter what they see, it's okay. And 
I want to tell you something. Ever since that eventful day in the Garden of Eden, there has been no human relationship that is totally transparent. There are things about you this morning, all you have to do is think for about ten seconds. There are things in your life this morning that you hope no one ever knows. There are thoughts you've had. There are things you've done. There are things you've thought of doing. There are dreams you have in the positive sense. And there are also sinister thoughts that have crossed your mind that you sincerely hope no one ever knows. Because ever since that day in the garden, we have perfected the art of hiding from one another. That's one of the reasons why Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. And we sang about that this morning, about the, the love of God that comes to us with all awareness. There is nothing I can ever do that will surprise Him. There's nothing I will ever do that He did not know was there. God is the one who knows me completely. And when I come to the foot of the cross and bow my heart and life before Him in humility, recognizing the truth that I am a sinner and I do need forgiveness, I not only receive in that moment forgiveness for everything I know is wrong, but I receive forgiveness and cleansing for everything that He knows is wrong, and He knows it all. Aren't you glad that there is one who knows you completely and who loves you with abandon? And you can never surprise Him by what you're hiding. God knows everything there is to know. But on the human plane... That transparency was broken. Another thing that happened was the blame game started. You look closely at the text and, and you find out as God comes to ask, uh, He says, Adam, where are you? And Adam says, we heard the sound. I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat. And Adam said, the woman that you gave me. You see the shift of responsibility? You know, one of the interesting things, and I remember from childhood in Sunday school lessons kind of growing up, the, the, the image I had in my mind of this scene in the garden was that Eve was out walking through the garden one day. And came upon this tree. And the serpent said, hey, doesn't this look good? And Eve said, yeah, I kind of like this. And she ate. And she thought it was pretty good. So she went back and found Adam and gave it to him. It wasn't until many years later as I was reading the text more closely that I realized that's not what it says. And that solved a great problem for me because I always wondered if Eve was the one who ate the fruit, how come Adam got the blame? I mean, for legitimately in the Scriptures. Because the Bible does not say in the book of Romans, through one woman, sin entered the world. It says through one man, sin entered the world. 
and death by sin. So death is passed upon all men because all have sinned. And I guess my question was, how could Adam be responsible? But look back in verse 6 of chapter 3. When the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes and was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and gave to her husband with her. He was standing right there. He was co-conspirator. He was involved in this. And he made no effort. He lifted not a finger to say, Eve, I don't really think this is a very good idea. We need to get out of here. He just stood silently by while his wife and this serpent had this conversation and looked on approvingly as she ate and handed some to him. And he ate. And now they're after the fact. And I want you to use a little bit of sanctified imagination. All of a sudden they're horribly embarrassed. You, you, you've, you've all been there. You've done something, you've crossed a line, you, you've committed a deed for which there is no return. And now you would give anything to take it back. You're just disgusted with yourself. Oh, that there was someone else to blame. Now, can you imagine them sewing the fig leaves together? Trying to get these garments. I mean, see the dressing room scene. They're trying to get these things to fit. You know, we wouldn't be in this mess if it hadn't been for you. Well, if you'd said something, I wouldn't have done it. All of a sudden, the bickering has begun. The blame game has started. They're at each other's throats. Then God shows up and they both run and hide. And when God calls them out, the first thing out of Adam's mouth is, she did it and it's your fault. You made her, she's your problem. And then, being the good counselor, God doesn't comment at that point. He holds judgment. He turns to the woman and he says, And what's your excuse? And she says, the snake, and you made him. They're both blaming God, and they're each blaming something else. And even though they're admitting their participation, they're not accepting responsibility. The relationship of the marriage was fractured. And I want you to look down in verse... 16, because this verse, probably the misunderstanding of this verse, has given rise to more grief in the human race than anyone I can think of. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, in pain you will bring forth children. And then God, he's not adding to the judgment He's making the observation. In other words, in marriage and in the family, in the future, 
When you have children, I will greatly multiply your pain. But then he says, but if you think opting out of marriage is going to be the solution, in other words, if I just don't ever get married and have kids, I'll be okay. You know, he says, but in your marriage, yet, your desire will be for your husband, nonetheless, he shall rule over you. There has been tons of bad exegesis on these verses. The ancients used to think, I'm not talking about New Testament writers, but I'm talking about early commentators. The ancients used to think that the problem here was sex. In fact, some of the people uh, actually believed that the whole sin thing was they, they had sex. And we know that that's not true because God, and I hit this the last time, Chapter 1, God made them male and female and blessed them and said, multiply, fill the earth. Well, clearly that's not the issue. But nonetheless, some of the ancient commentators have gotten this wrapped up with sexuality. Your desire is going to be sexually toward your men. And they're going to still have charge over you. And if you think about that for just like half a second, you realize that that's making the Bible turn all women into sexual predators. And I can quite assure you that that is not what the Bible is saying here. Then, somewhat later, in the last few hundred years, commentators have taken a different approach. And what they have looked at and said in here is that God is saying the man shall rule his wife. That's the biblical mandate. And I think that has given rise to all kinds of misunderstanding and suppression of women in the culture. What does it actually say? Well, if we look at chapter 4, verse 7, we find that there's an exact Hebrew parallel to the phraseology. In Hebrew, in, in uh, Genesis 4, 7, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. These are the exact Hebrew words in chapter 3, verse 16. Its desire is for you. But you must master it. And what the Hebrew in this passage is actually saying is, as a consequence of the fall, Eve, your tendency from now on is going to be to control your husband. That's going to be your desire. And... His desire is going to be to dominate you. There is no longer this harmonious partnership in the relationship, but both parties are vying for control. And the unfortunate reality of the human race, as far as women are concerned, 
is that by and large, not on an individual basis, but on a class basis, men are capable in physical prowess of dominating women as a group. There's a few women out there I would not want to take on. And uh, there's a few men that couldn't fight their way out of a paper bag. But by and large, the point being made here is that a, a, an, an enmity has come into the relationship that has fractured it. And this is not a prescription for marriage. This is a problem with sin. Verse 16 is saying that both individuals want to be the king in the relationship. And as a result of it, tragedy has struck the home. We're going to find out later when we talk about how God designed marriage in these passages. We're going to find out more what that relationship was supposed to look like. But before I leave this subject, I just want to read from Mr. Waltke, Dr. Waltke. I, I haven't given him very good press in this series so far, but he is a Hebrew scholar. And I want to read what he says has to say about this verse. Desire, he says, the chiastic structure of the phrase pairs, pairs the terms desire and rule over, suggesting that her desire will be to dominate. This interpretation of an ambiguous passage is validated by the same pairing in the unambiguous context of chapter 4, verse 7. You see what we've already done that. We've made that comparison. And there's no question what it means in chapter 4, verse 7. To rule over, ironically, the man will dominate her. Their alienation from one another is profoundly illustrated by God's description of the power struggles rather than love and cherishing that is to come. Male leadership, not dominance, had been the assumed ideal in the pre-fall situation. And so the consequence is that now the relationship is strained. If I were to look back over 30 plus years of marriage counseling and try to take apart all the problems that have been presented in marriages over the years, it still boils down to the basic fact that there are two people in a relationship, both of whom want to be in charge. Not both of whom love each other and want to support each other, but when it goes wrong, both of them want to be in charge. And they don't want to be in charge for the benefit of the other. They want to be in charge to get their own way. And when Paul says in Ephesians 5, in the corrective measure and the power of the Holy Spirit, wives, honor and give respect to your husbands, he is addressing this problem in Genesis 3. And then when he says, and you husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church and died for it, for her, that he might present her in all of her splendor without spot or blemish. That your goal is to die for your wife 
to your own desires to love her and cherish her the way Christ does the church. And if you analyze the vast majority of marriage problems, you come down to the fact that one or both want to be in charge because they want to do what they want to do. And they always think what they want to do is best. But typically the woman is trying to figure out how to get her man to do what she wants him to do. And typically he's trying to figure out how to do what he wants to do without being too concerned about his wife. And therein lies the conflict. And there's the problem. And it started here in the garden. And apart from Jesus Christ, there's not much hope for it. If you don't have a marriage that's based in Jesus Christ and there's some dying to self going on, there's not a lot of hope for those relationships. People ask me, I, I, I didn't plan to say this, but I... I <laughs> people ask me, they, they come and they present a problem in a marriage and they say, what can, what can I do to fix whatever? And I don't do much counseling anymore because the answer I give in marriage is also the answer I give in most other situations in life. I'm going to make a couple of assumptions about you. I'm going to assume, first of all, that you love the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to assume that He is your Lord and you want to honor Him. And then I'm going to assume that what you really want to know is what can I do to honor Jesus Christ. And so when someone asks me a question like that, how can I get my husband to do whatever, I usually say to them, why don't you pray for him? Why don't you get in the closet and pray for him and ask God to change him? And I would never suggest that anyone do anything inappropriate or sinful or wrong, but why don't you support him in every way that you can and ask God to fix what's broken? Why don't you die to yourself and give up your own ambitions? And it's like, gee, <laughs> I came here for help. Oh, I see. What you really wanted to know was how can you get your own way? That's what you asked me. Not in those terms. Or I say to the man, you know what? Why don't you listen to your wife and find out what her needs are? And why don't you begin living for her if they're legitimate and appropriate Seek for her to become all that Jesus Christ has destined her to be. Why don't you die to your passions and live for her? Gosh, I came here to find out how I could get her to please me. Oh, well, I guess you asked the wrong question. And that goes for every other relationship in life. Just go figure it out. Do you want to... Live for Jesus Christ and give yourself for others? Or do you want to live for yourself? Relationships were broken here. And then there was separation from God. They became afraid of God. I want you to notice here what they did. They covered themselves with leaves to hide from each other, and then they hid among the leaves to hide from God. Did you catch that? They hid among the trees of the garden. They were trying to cover their sin and their shame with vegetation. You know, another thing that used to bother me was, why did God reject Cain's sacrifice? He brought his produce. 
but he accepted Abel's. I mean, isn't that unfair? But the reality is, is that God has nothing against farmers. But what God was saying to Cain was, vegetation will not cover sin. There has to be bloodshed. There has to be sacrifice. And so if you're a farmer, take some of your grain and trade it for a lamb because you need to offer a sacrifice of blood for the covering of sin. Leaves will not do the job. And they immediately hid from each other and from God by trying to hide in the trees. God eventually solved their pressing problem by making them garments from a slain animal. And where they had walked with God and enjoyed tremendous fellowship, they're now hiding from Him and quaking in fear of the judgment they know they deserve. You know, friends, one of the realities of sin is that it does bring a guilty conscience. And when we are aware of a holy God, we know that we're in trouble and we need a solution. And if you don't want to bend the knee to God, you've either got to come up with a system of appeasing Him that satisfies your own mind. That's a form of rationalization, but it's called religion. And all over the world, people have religious practices that they're hoping will appease God within a scheme that that makes sense to them, but somehow comes short of eradicating their guilt. Or they take the other extreme and they just invent God right out of the picture. They become atheists. No one is born an atheist. Everyone is born with an awareness of a, of a divine Creator. It's on the heart of every person. If you become an atheist, it's because somewhere along the line you choose to deny that that niggling awareness that God is there. And you have to talk yourself out of it and exclude Him from the picture. Whole sciences have been built around the desire to exclude God from the reality of life. Because if He is there and He is holy, we are in big trouble. And if somehow we can get rid of Him in our minds, perhaps we can solve our problem and just live without God. The only trouble with that is that one day you're going to die. And when you open your eyes on the other side of death, you're going to be in hell. And you're going to be very aware of the presence of God. Except you'll never be able to make connection again. That's a horrible place to be. They hid from God and were afraid of Him because they were guilty. And then, in the last section, there is judgment upon sin and curse curses upon two things. And I want you to see the difference between the judgment and the curse. First of all, there were only two things in this passage that were cursed. The serpent was cursed, and the earth was cursed. 
Adam was not cursed. Eve was not cursed. They were judged. And there's a big difference that we need to make in our minds. But the serpent was cursed and the earth was cursed. In the first case, verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, I believe that this was a real snake coiled around the tree talking to Eve. But that the devil was using this creature. Very beautiful creature, the Bible says. And very shrewd and wise. That is not necessarily a negative term. That word is used in Proverbs of a wise person. Someone who has discernment, perception. The serpent was a wise creature but came under the spell of the devil. And as we read the cursing here that goes on the creature, we also infer it to the inspirer, the the satanic uh, direction that that is going on. We can read the devil in this also. In the book of Revelation, as we come toward the end, we find that that old serpent, the devil, is cast into the lake of fire. And what is happening here is God is saying, in essence, to the devil as well, your domain is going to be down here in the dirt. Lucifer, the son of the morning star that was created with glory and splendor, is now consigned to groveling in the dirt. And this world becomes his domain. As he, according to the Apostle Paul in the letter to the Corinthians, is the God, small g, of this world. And then it says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. There's going to be a constant battle going on between you and between the the offspring, the woman and her offspring and and the, the whole human race. There's going to be a battle. Paul tells us we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realm. Our struggle on this planet is principally against powers of darkness who roam the face of the planet. And then he says, And he will crush you on the head, and you will bruise him on the heel. And in this message, there is a hope and a promise that one day this woman will give birth to a son one of her daughters will give birth to a son who will ultimately crush the head of the serpent, even though his heel will be bruised. And we see that in Jesus Christ on the cross. As he is nailed to the cross and his heel is literally bruised, but in the triumphant resurrection as he made public display of the powers of darkness and Satan himself having disarmed them and triumphed over them. He ascended into the heavens. He is our victor. The other curse was upon the planet. If you look at verse uh, 17, Cursed is the ground because of you. God brought judgment to Adam, but he brought a cursing to the ground. I remember Kerry preaching about this some while back, but I want to remind you of Romans chapter 8, verse 18. 
where Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to come, to be revealed to us, for the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. That is, it's wait, all of creation is waiting for the time when Jesus comes back with the church in, in resurrected glory. And until that time, it says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of Him, that is God, who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Right now, this earth is cursed. It's under the curse. God put the ground, the very planet, under judgment and a curse. That it would be out of order and, and out, of, out of whack. That the beautiful garden that had given all they needed without effort, as they are cast out into the place beyond the garden, and they will now eat their bread and eat, make their living by the toil and sweat of their brow as they try to gain a living out of the ground. And it is not going to be cooperative. Thorns and thistles it will yield. Constant weeding, constant cultivation, constant battling the elements, constant dealing with the insects, constant dealing with the rabbits and the deer and whatever else are trying to eat everything you're trying to grow. You know, the Scripture says, six days shall you do your labor, and the seventh day you shall rest. Only in the West do we have this wild and crazy notion that we should have a 30 to 40 hour work week and then come home and have blissful recreation and all weekends off and just have most of our time free and then when we get to the near the end of our life the last 20 years or so we should live in just blissful joy chasing a little white ball around the green lawn somewhere you know this this is the life most of the world doesn't have a clue what we're thinking they work from sun up till sundown and sometimes beyond just trying to scrape together a living we were talking this morning about buying, helping to buy books for pastors in Cambodia. Do you remember Steve telling us that a week's wage for a Cambodian would, might be about $7.50? A week's wage. Buying one of those books is 2% of their annual income at the subsidized rate. What's 2% of your annual income? You want to spend it on a Bible commentary? They're actually willing to do so. That's pretty amazing. I learned that the average family in the Philippines lives on less than $300 a year. A year. Isn't that amazing? And most places of the world, people work 60, 70, 80 hours a week, hard labor, just trying to get food and shelter. 
and those few that understand will take the Sabbath rest. Toil was a part of God's judgment, but cursing of the ground was a part of the judgment as well. And finally, upon Eve, the scripture says that her pain would be greatly multiplied in childbirth. I don't know that I can give a good biblical explanation for this, other than the reality that in childbirth there is a reminder that human life is now tainted with sorrow, and even in blessing there is a measure of pain, and there's a reminder a constant reminder of going back to God and the need to go back to God as Eve brings forth her children in toil and labor and Adam provides for his family in toil and labor. There is now a new dimension of life in judgment that it ain't going to be easy, folks. And... Out of all of that, with it comes returning to the dust as God Himself introduces death to conscious life by slaying an animal to provide an adequate covering for their shame. This is the first record of death in all the Scripture why I cannot be an evolutionist in any shape, fashion, or form, because there was no death until this moment of conscious life, until God slew this animal, perhaps a lamb, and covered them with the garments from the slain animal, and said to them, to dust you will return. And now we have tsunamis, and we have hurricanes, and we have earthquakes, and we have diseases, and plagues, and wars, and strife, and bitterness, and divorce, and drug and alcohol addiction, and family problems, and kids in rebellion, and life out of whack. And successful people trying to take advantage of unsuccessful people. And everyone looking out for number one themselves. And we have a world that has gone afoul. And the reason behind it all is sin. It may not be your particular sin that causes the specific problem you're facing. But it's here because of sin. And God has provided a remedy in Jesus Christ. He has provided a way back and a way out. And He has promised in the meanwhile to be a very present help in our time of trouble. Even when we're the cause of it. Aren't you glad for that? I'm so grateful that when I mess up and I go to God, He doesn't say, well, fool. You cause the problem, just deal with it. He always says, I love you, and I'll be with you, and I'll walk with you. He always says, I forgive you. He gives me the hope of eternal life. Praise His name. Father, thank You for Your Word to us. 
We now understand the reason for the problems, but we are also glad for the solution that is in Jesus Christ, and we rejoice in Him this morning. Thank you for telling us the truth, Lord. How can you be a good God if there's evil in the world? You're a good God. There's evil because we have sinned. But you have loved us with an everlasting love. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.